1: Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff and today Matt and Jero and I are going to be talking about some mountain bike trail advocacy issues. We're also going to talk about trail etiquette as well because that subject kind of overlaps. Um, and there's been a lot of news over the past few months. Uh, if you've been keeping up with Single Tracks, we've been writing about this stuff sort of as it comes in, but we thought it would be fun and interesting to sort of round it all up and have a conversation about some of the things that are happening. So first off, uh, let's talk about some of the crazy weather we're having uh, in the United States, at least. I don't know about Europe, too. Matt, there was a lot of uh, snow in Colorado in June, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's been kind of ridiculous. Um, (laughs) I mean, just a really wet winter overall, and then... It's just extended all the way into June, basically, to where, yeah, even the high country got some snow over this last weekend. Um, And then even down in the front range, we were fighting snow in May. So, um, wow, usually a bit of that every year. But it does, like, after a long winter, when you're like, sweet, it's spring, I can go (laughs) ride. It's like, no, not really.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah, and you're up at Keystone right now and I heard that they opened the bike park but then they had to close it back down for a little bit because of all the snow.
0: Yeah, yep, Keystone, um, and Winter Park too. Um, we did some riding here yesterday and it's like only the lower mountain. There's still we went up to the top of the mountain yesterday. There's still so much snow around like Yeah, that's crazy. Wow.
1: And I saw a headline today about um how a lot of the mountain bike trails in Colorado, like the lower elevation front range stuff are really, really crowded right now uh, because people don't have anywhere else to ride. They're ready to ride, but all the high country stuff is still closed.
0: Yeah. It's a battle like because it's getting nice. Everybody wants to get out hikers, mountain bikers. um, And then, you know, you still got the same amount of trails for the most part. So it's, a battle to share the trails (laughs) it's a battle to share which is kind of rough yeah well
1: even in other parts of the country you know they may not have snow but it sounds like it's been a pretty wet summer and so Jero you put together a survey asking people what do they do when their trails are wet and you had some interesting choices in there talk a little bit about that survey and and what you kind of learned from it
2: yeah, I uh, I kind of wanted to ask folks. You know, cause it seems like everybody's got a different take on whether we should be riding trails when it's wet, how mm-hmm. we should ride them. So yeah, just get a get a pulse on what readers thought about that. And uh, yeah, so I included. I tried to include answers that sort of fit with different soil types and different trail systems. Mm-hmm. Like, it, do you have trails where? you know you're riding clay and if you if you ride those trails when it's wet you just you make like a permanent track in them and Mm -hmm. kind of destroy them or is it like really well draining soil that you know you can ride no matter what or some variant of that and a lot of folks that commented um, were you know they had like kind of trails that they ride specifically when it's wet like they've got Mm -hmm. this these trails set aside that everybody knows these drain better than everything else. Right. Um that wasn't true for everyone but that kind of seemed to be the theme through all of the responses was folks were like yeah it's there's definitely trails we got to stay off uh mm-hmm. when they're wet for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean the number one response was people said they just do other stuff when the trails are too wet, you know, they I guess, go out for a road ride or find just something else to do, um, which is good. I mean, people, the message is, is out there. People know not to destroy the trails. Um, Although 2% of the respondents admitted to riding, knowing that they were causing damage to the trail. So I guess uh, there's still a few out there who haven't been enlightened.
2: For sure. Yeah. Uh, They probably don't build trails. (laughs) Um, good point. I mean, there's, there's certainly folks who live in Oregon and Washington and Scotland, Ireland, and all the really rainy parts of the world where if you don't ride in the rain, you don't ride. Right. So, um, you know, those, those places definitely have different building techniques to deal with that. But, uh, yeah, I know that around in Portland, the only kind of the only in town, uh, mountain bike trails, are closed whenever it rains they're Mm -hmm. on pal butte and uh Mm. yeah i mean so they're closed they're closed a lot more than they're open Um, yeah yeah
1: well yeah i visited bellingham this summer and uh up in washington and it rains there a ton uh, as you might imagine and i was really struck i mean we rode in the rain there um and yeah i mean it's just different no matter where you are you mentioned the soil type and the The trails and the soil there tends to be pretty loamy, so it seems like it kind of soaks up any rain. It's kind of spongy like that, but also the tree cover helps. I mean, it really disperses the rain. It's not like you've got, Mm. you know, just rivers of, of water running down the slopes, which seems to help. And then also the rain itself is different. I mean, here when it rains in the Southeast, you know, we tend to get downpours Um, whereas it, you know, the rain is just not as intense in, in the Bellingham area from what I could tell. So again, yeah, just, it depends on a lot of different stuff, whether you can ride trails or not in the rain or after a rain.
0: Did it seem like, I mean, the trails you rode there, could you notice different styles on the trail that were meant to soak up rain or divert water off the trail?
1: No, I mean, they, they didn't seem to do a lot of that, which (coughs) was really impressive to me. And then also, um, the trails are just way steeper than anything we have here in the Southeast. And I think part of that is again, the rain, when it comes, it just isn't as intense as it is here where that stuff would just erode immediately. I mean, the water would just shoot Mm. straight down the mountain. Um, but there again, like the tree cover seems to be a little more dense and then the rain just doesn't, it doesn't seem to, to fall as hard <laughs> if that's, if that's a thing. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. In the Pacific Northwest, they get a little more like all day rain instead of all at once. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. It's
1: definitely Interesting. different. And then, yeah, Jero, yeah. you mentioned it too, that a lot of local areas, they'll build, you know, one trail system that's a little more protected against rain and, and muddy conditions. So you know, sure. adding a lot of rocks and things like that really helps. Um, so, and that was one of the, the biggest responses to people said they ride like rockier trails when it's
2: wet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You can't hurt that stuff. It's just a little slick. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> cool. So another topic we've been talking about this summer is pirate trails going legit. So, um, arg. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of different names for these bandit trails. I like that one too. And, uh, Mm -hmm. social trails. That's a little more like politically correct or neutral (laughs) sounding, uh, illegal trails. People call them that too, but we're basically talking about unauthorized trails that people build like not on their own land or they don't have permission or whatever the case may be. Matt, you wrote a story about a trail in Washington called the ribbed trail. Uh, that started out that way, but then later went legit. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about that story?
0: Yeah, that one was really cool to work on. Um, So back in the 90s, up in Leavenworth, Washington, um, it was kind of like back during the big free ride area, big Marzocchi Forks, and... (laughs) um, I mean, these big bikes and wooden planks were really, really kind of in style. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had like the fro riders and um, just the big kind of wooden feature stuff was in style. Yeah. Um, but anyway, like that influence from BC, it kind of spread south a little bit into Washington. And uh, people just wanted to go out and build that stuff. So there's a group of mountain bikers up in Leavenworth, Washington, that had been building their own trails and um, built – an illegal trail called Ribbed. Um, it's probably like the most popular trail uh, up in the Wenatchee Forest. Um, and eventually like other people were catching on to it. So you had people from out of town coming, um, finding about, out about this Rib Trail, which has like these massive wooden features and big jumps and everything. Going out into the National Forest, riding it, Getting hurt and eventually needing like medical attention. So when the fire mm-hmm. department shows up, they're like, Well, how'd you get hurt out here? And, um they go, oh, you know, I was riding this big wooden uh feature on this trail. Um and so eventually the fire department catches on to it, lets the forest rangers know what's going on, and they find out where the trail is. So mm-hmm. it was this rib trail, a lot of people end up getting hurt on. And so you know they would go back tear up these wooden features scrap them in the woods um you know it, like mountain bikers aren't going to stop building or stop riding right. just because the forest service is making it challenging um so it ended up being rebuilt a few times and one of the original builders james munley um i spoke with him for this story um he, yeah, he was one of the original builders on this rib trail when it was illegal like 20 years ago. And eventually they got tired of it getting torn down and having to rebuild it. And it's just this constant cat and mouse game and fighting with the Forest Service. And so back then Munley went and started the first trail advocacy organization back then. Um called Trails, like Trail Riders Association in Leavenworth. Hmm. Um so this really local grassroots advocacy organization. And started building a relationship with the Forest Service. Um so time passes, Munley ends up working for I think it was Stevens Pass up in Washington, a hmm. bike park, and then you know, gets a bunch of experience in trail building running a bike shop out there and eventually the uh emba evergreen mountain bike alliance absorbs this trail organization in leavenworth so it becomes the central chapter of emba and they continue talking to the wenatchee forest service district continue building that relationship with them finding out how they can build trails legitimately um and mostly you know they just stopped building illegal trails, stopped building pirate trails, and started conversating with the Forest Service more and more. So, they've had a ton of trails built in Leavenworth since then, all legitimate. The priorities were kind of building intermediate beginner trails because that's where you know the need is for the majority of riders. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this year, a few weeks ago, they opened the Ribbed Trail again, which... It's not the exact, it doesn't follow the exact topography as the original trail, but it's like an advanced jump, um, an advanced jump trail built by mountain bikers for mountain bikers. So there's like big, like 25 foot tabletops and, um, sweet berms and all this, you know, all these sweet riding features. There's no wooden stuff because the forest service doesn't allow that anymore. Mm -hmm. But you know, in spirit, it's like this advanced jump trail that is sort of taking the place of what the original rib trail, um, sought to do to where now in this day and age of riding, these jump trails are way more popular and, um, are kind of the free ride trail of today's mountain biking.
1: Yeah. And I guess, I mean, they couldn't have built those features back then anyway. I mean, a 25 foot tabletop, you're talking about heavy machinery that you're gonna yeah. need to build that. And, I mean, I guess in a lot of ways, those wooden features, those were things you could build. I mean, you could bring in a saw and a hammer and, you know, kind of construct stuff that's pretty big and pretty gnarly. But these days, yeah, th- I feel like we're doing that same stuff, but just out of dirt, which requires some equipment.
0: Yeah. And that was one of the things Munley was talking about is, so in the original rib trail, you just had these massive gap jumps that are like, you know, unless you're very confident and advanced rider like Mm -hmm. you're not going to touch it um and if you do try it like there's a good chance unless you're a really confident advanced rider that you're gonna case and like break your frame Mm -hmm. or maybe break some bones Uh, because they couldn't like the way they're building tabletops now you need an excavator to go in and fill the gap and form these tabletop jumps that are just as big but way more progressive and safe to try and Mm -hmm. land on so, but yeah, obviously it's an illegal, illegal builder. You can't bring tractors into the woods. and
1: <laughs> Yeah. Jero, you did a story on, uh, the Scottish approach to illegal bike trails. what did you find out about how they're tackling this problem?
2: Yeah, I'm actually working on that one right now. Um, and they, so developing mountain biking in Scotland is kind of the overarching, uh, Group that works with all the different chapters and what they try to do is when they find uh, an authorized system Mm -hmm. they meet with the folks who are building the trails and try and get them to become another chapter Mm -hmm. Um, and then they take a look they assess the trails they meet with the landowners and uh, and try and set up an unofficial system so that they can continue to build trails or if the landowner's not into it, they can figure out, um, figure out some other way to do things. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a unique approach for sure. And they're also interested in allowing trails that aren't the kind of trails that are usually illegal, uh, like fall line trails and just just things that don't drain well and Mm -hmm. are pretty dangerous. Like they understand that if they, if, those trails are not allowed. People are going to build them anyway, and people are going to get hurt, kind of like Matt was saying. So, mm-hmm. um, finding places, for example, where there's going to be a clear cut in the next two years, and saying like, "Here's where you can build those trails," mm-hmm. um, because that degradation is going to happen anyway. Uh, the The area is going to be destroyed at some point, but let people enjoy it until it is.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: um, just a really, really different way to. To think about it, and uh, I mean, mountain biking is exploding in Scotland. It's uh, they're doing some some pretty cool, different stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy to think about how many trails, you know, even well-known trails started out as illegal or unofficial. Um, one that comes to mind is the Hangover Trail in Sedona. One's really popular yeah. now, and um, only recently, last few years, I guess it's been officially open to bikes. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, what, what is the takeaway then? You know, obviously there are risks to building illegal trails, you know, getting caught, uh, or having the trail shut down. Uh, but it also seems like maybe there's kind of a reward. I mean, some people in the end of it, the trail ends up going legit. So how do you guys kind of look at that?
0: I think, um, somebody kind of left an ignorant comment on that rib trail article that I put out and <laughs> it's like, why is the Forest Service rewarding bad behavior? But I mean, really, what the Forest Service is rewarding was like decades of conversation with them mm-hmm. and actually doing it the right way. Um, another piece is that a lot of social trails that pop up or illegal trails um, tend to signify a need for some sort of riding. Mm-hmm. And so, Obviously, the Forest Service is probably not made up of a bunch of mountain bikers. So I don't think that they probably always identify best the needs that mountain bikers have, which is why like, advocacy is so important to have those conversations and say, hey, this is a need. Like, If we build a trail in a certain way that's going to be sustainable, then it's a possibility. Right.
2: I think in terms of risk, there's also, I mean, landowners have a bit of liability for any accidents that are happening on those properties. And so, you know, like making sure that they're involved in those conversations around what happens, not just like, Hey, can we build a trail on your land? But mm-hmm. is it cool if we build a trail full of jump lines? And do you realize that somebody might go to the hospital and might sue you? Like, right. Yep. It's a big piece of the puzzle.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was an example a couple of years ago of a couple of sort of like middle-aged guys who were helping maintain an illegal trail. I believe it was like in a state park in Ohio and uh, they were caught um, on, on video, no less, you know, the, the state set up some of those game cameras hidden in the woods and identified these two guys like spraying roundup, you know, all over the area and they ended up going to jail. I mean, I think their, oh, wow. their trial is still ongoing, but um, there is real personal risk to doing that. Um, and then there's also just the, the mountain biker, the mountain bike community risk that we're going to be seen as, you know, this group of people that are not working with the land managers and that we can't be trusted and all of that. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, there's examples here locally where people built trails over the years, sort of informal social trails, not just mountain bikers, but hikers too, um, and mm-hmm. eventually, you know, a, a county government or whoever the land manager is, will get involved and we'll say, okay, we know there's trails here. We don't have budget to build them. Um, and they're already, they already exist. So we're just going to allow it, um, which mm-hmm. is interesting, but you never know what you're going to get. And so it, there definitely is potential to get, get in a lot of trouble. So
0: it's kind of relatable to skateboarding in that way to where, like, I mean, now you go to any town and there's a skate park there mm-hmm. because people, security guards and city officials got <laughs> tired of like going and yelling at skaters in the bank yeah. or the schoolyard or something like that. So, right. like, well, like make us a plate, place to skate and yeah. we're not going to be that big of an issue anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, okay. for sure. So shifting topics a little bit, we did another survey a few weeks back about trail etiquette who should yield on the trail? Should it be climbing riders or descending riders? And this survey got a ton of responses and a lot of good discussion. Jero, can you kind of summarize that for us?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it was cool to see how many people, uh, were interested in talking about it. It seemed like the main thread was folks thought it, it depends, you know, like Mm if, if you're a lot of people uh, were like, let's just both stop and say hi, which I had appreciated. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, we're mountain bikers. We're out here having fun. Like, Why not meet each other and just uh, say hi, chat for a minute? Um, but the main thread was really that it depends on the trail, the type of trail, where you're at on the trail. If you're in the middle of a you know, super technical section for the climber, maybe the descending rider should pull over and let them go. And if you're in the middle of like a super steep thing where the climbing rider is either pushing their bike or it could be maybe let the descending rider go so they don't have to skid and mm-hmm. maybe they can't stop. Um, yeah, it was really just an undecided uh, <laughs> survey in the end, but it was, it was really cool to hear how many people had thought about it and discussed it and had r- some really interesting examples. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The most common response was that the descending rider should yield. That was like 47%, so not quite half. Right. Traditionally, that's kind of been the, that's like the default thing. I don't know where they teach that. Not that, you know, you have to get a a license to ride your mountain bike, (laughs) but I feel like it's been taught over the years that descending riders should yield. Um, But yeah, people make a lot of really good points about situations where the climbing rider maybe should yield.
0: I wonder if that's an empathy thing. Um, it is. Yeah. Yeah. It is for sure. It's part of their trail etiquette rules. Okay. That makes sense.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I I answered that, that the descending rider should yield just just to keep it simple. You know, I feel like yeah. Yeah. if we have to overanalyze it every time, you know, there's going to be some some conflicts or, you know, nobody knows. It's like pulling up to a four-way stop and like, who's going to go? I'm going to go. Oh, <laughs> right. I'm going like. Right.
2: Totally. Um, which still happens
0: a bunch on the trails too (laughs) right
2: (laughs) and then i mean on a personal level too like if i'm i'll say if i'm climbing and i hear somebody coming down the trail which you always can Mm -hmm. uh if they're descending fast enough that you need to really worry about getting out of the way Mm -hmm. um like in that case for me personally it always makes sense if i'm climbing to get out of the way like they might come around the corner and be spooked and not you know, have the yeah. ability to stop as quickly as I could and they'll have to skid, mm-hmm. which a lot of people don't like to do if they don't have to. So Right. Yeah, it's there are cases where if you're the climbing rider and you can hear the person, you can just get out of the way.
1: Yeah, definitely. I never assume yeah. that the the descending rider is gonna stop for me or slow down, so I definitely, definitely get out of the way.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, you mentioned skidding. Is that still mm-hmm. a cool thing that you know we see in the mountain bike videos these days
0: yeah did you watch uh i I fucking hate that the (laughs) video group or no now it's like their name is like mahalo my dude
1: um
0: (laughs) but last week that was like their video um like how to roost with one of those pro riders up in uh up in whistler so it is still cool i guess (laughs) yeah
1: yeah Well, we, we've talked about this topic before and obviously skidding is, is not good for the trails. It causes damage and, but yet it's still really cool in the videos. Every video seems to have it. And we talked about how they do that. In some of the videos it's, it's fake. I mean, in a way it's fake, they like throw down some extra dust and totally make sure they kick it up. And then hopefully we're, we're just going to assume that they go back and fix any damage that they do. Um, But, yeah, as a general rule, trail etiquette-wise, skidding is not cool.
2: Yeah, it's – I mean, we we had a couple discussions about this at the recent IMBO Summit. And Mm -hmm. uh, there were, you can imagine, a lot of folks that are pretty adamantly against skidding. Mm -hmm. But I think there's also an argument for the fact that if we want to have professional racers, like people who are racing enduro and downhill – Mm -hmm. And obviously they're going to have to skid in races. That's just part of the deal. Like they also have to be able to train Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and that's, that's, you know, like it's not that you just ride race pace in a race. Like you have to practice for that thing. So I personally go by the rule that if you dig, you can skid. (laughs) Yeah. Like if you work on trails and you put, A fair amount of time into maintaining them and making sure that they're fun and taken care of for everybody Mm -hmm. it's okay if you skid every once in a while (laughs) yeah Yeah. that's that's my take on it yeah Yeah.
1: I don't think anybody can say they they've never skidded or that they never skid I mean it happens uh
2: -uh. yeah I mean our trails even just in my backyard are pretty steep and skidding is in some sections, the only way to get down, like mm-hmm. there's no yeah totally there's no choice. You're gonna lock yeah. your rear tire, and it's part of the steering technique. Like it's it's just part of the ride.
1: Right. Yeah. Or like yeah. Even riding unfamiliar trails, you come in fast and don't realize there's a corner ahead and you yeah skid. Yeah. Or else you can hit,
2: totally. Hit a tree. Or a climbing
0: rider. Yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah. I guess the thing is like if it's really like being encourage just to skid around every corner that you go into and, um, yeah, then maybe it's like, all right, well, do you need to skid in every single corner? (laughs) Probably probably not. Probably not. not. Do you need to blow up every berm? No, no, (laughs) just some of them. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So one of the topics that we've covered over the years is what, what we call trail terrorism or booby traps that target bikers and it seems like uh, sort of anecdotally maybe there aren't as many this year than we've heard about in years past Um, there were a couple of instances there was one in May I believe April or May in San Diego uh, some barbed wire that was strung across a trail and was actually disguised with like vegetation wrapped around it so it looked like you know just a vine or a branch sticking out Um, and then another one in Colorado Springs this was actually on like a rail trail path but uh somebody had strung yeah. like a neck high trip wire across the path and and a rider wow. actually went down on it and was hurt so what do you guys think i mean are we seeing more or less of this um is this what, what do you think could even be driving people to do this kind of thing
0: mental illness i don't know <laughs> yeah
2: yeah yeah absolutely it doesn't like doesn't seem normal wanting to be malicious against people who are out having fun like that. I don't, I have no idea. That's
0: yeah. That's nutty. I don't know if we're really seeing more. I mean, it seems like every year we always see like a few, like Mm -hmm. it's just consistent. Like every year you're going to see a handful and, um, I don't know. Yeah. Some people are weird and (laughs) like, I mean, I get it. Like who I go out and hike and maybe go on a trail run every now and then. And like, yeah, mountain bikers aren't always the best, um, at least where I'm at, like, there's just a lot of people on the trails and not all of them are courteous. Um, but yeah, I mean, some people take it to an extreme where it's like, Holy cow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a tough one. I mean, I guess just the best we can do is to try to get along with other user groups. And, um, again, yeah, it's not our fault. I mean, (laughs) it's never justified for somebody to try to injure another person on the trail, but like you said yeah. I I can see it that somebody just gets really frustrated with bikers not being courteous. I mean, you never hear of it going the other way though where bikers are trying to sabotage the trail for hikers or equestrians or yeah. anything like that. So like, a
0: punji pit
2: or Yeah. I, right. Yeah,
1: I don't even know how you would do it, but
2: maybe like throwing in some jumps in the middle of the trail could make people <laughs> grumpy, I suppose. Yeah. Right.
1: You have to walk up and over.
2: Right.
1: <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, so, another story we're tracking um, this summer is IMBA in Europe. And, you know, IMBA is the International Mountain Bike Association, but it was started here in the US. And um, for a long time, it was mainly like a US and Canada organization. But, Jerome, this summer you got to go to the IMBA Europe Summit. Uh, Would you find out about what's going on with the group uh, in Europe?
2: Uh, so many things. Um, there's chapters in, I think, 22 different countries that are part of IMBA EU and uh, so much cool stuff. Denmark's got a few hundred miles of newly signed and ranked trails. Whoa. Um, there's a cool uh, trail patrol thing going on at this, uh, this bike park in Norway where they have folks going around like helping people understand the sort of not only the rules, but also like understand, um, how to deal with their bikes when things go Hmm. wrong and, and they've got radios so they can radio for help if anybody gets hurt. Um, Hmm. it's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Sort of like a ski patrol.
2: Exactly. Like that's what it's based on. Exactly. Like Hmm. a ski patrol. Um, let's see. There's, several million dollars of state funding that went into a bunch of trails in ireland that are being built right now mm-hmm. wow. um, kind of on their way uh there's some similar funding in scotland um, not quite as much but there's some good funding for new trails and a lot of different uh trail centers going in because they're going to have the world championships in 2023 oh. so they're really ramping up to get ready for that and just uh, scotland is definitely focused on like being kind of the mountain bike capital of of europe Mm -hmm. it's uh they're they're putting Mm. tons of energy into it it's really cool um slovenia is in a similar spot where their government is putting money into it and their their tourist agencies um that are run by the government are really focusing on mountain biking and hiking and i mean it's it's a country that's covered in mountains so it's uh Kind of endless opportunities there.
1: Yeah, and you're going to get a chance to go out there and ride this summer too, right?
2: That's right. Yeah, I'm going to go ride with some of their guides for about a week uh, in July, which will be really nice. Sweet. A little bit cooler there. Yeah, I'm excited. Awesome. There's a a trail that's about, I heard it was 15 kilometers, and it's in an old lead mine. So the whole thing is like you're underground. You start at the top of the mountain and come out (laughs) the bottom. Wow. So hopefully... Get to check that out um, yeah
1: is there any any risk of lead poisoning
2: i had the same question i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna try and find out before i take the plunge
1: yeah wear like it, a uh, face mask or something you don't want to eat yeah. that stuff breathe it in exactly
2: totally yeah <laughs>
1: huh. so before imba europe like how were these trail advocacy and building groups organized i mean was it kind of siloed like country by country i mean it's not yeah. like Imba is in charge of any of these groups. Essentially, they kind of support them. But was there an organization that was kind of helping all of them before?
2: Not so much. So there was an Imba Spain before there was Imba EU. So their okay. their lineage with the organization goes back quite a bit further. I'm not. I don't know exactly when they started, but they've been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other than that, they were yeah they were siloed and nation specific there were different groups that worked with uh guides Mm -hmm. to get people certified and that's become even more prevalent because guides guides need to be licensed here um, uh, mostly for liability reasons Mm -hmm. and so yeah so there's there was and is um, a fair bit of organization around that but uh, the trail advocacy and trail building Sort of knowledge sharing, which is also you know a big part of what Imba does. Uh, didn't really exist at the time.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And it seems like maybe Imba Europe is is focused on that, sharing the trail building knowledge and things, and less so uh, about the like lobbying and the government sort of interaction because every country, I'm sure, is different as far as you know who's in charge of different land uses and and what their regulations are
2: yeah absolutely um there are trail building schools i think they're all held in italy um there are trail building schools a couple times a year where folks can come and learn the different levels of how to do everything and then go back to their chapter and share that information Mm -hmm. Um, and that is for sure like a primary focus is like how do we rate trails how do we properly sign trails so that those that signage makes sense with the rest of europe um And that's all based on EMBA guidelines that are the same in the U.S.
1: Okay, cool. Another story that we published this spring was about a study that was undertaken by the mountain bikers of Santa Cruz. Uh, It was a basically, I guess you would call it like a meta study of all the different studies that have been done about the impact of mountain bikes on the environment. And apparently this this club in Santa Cruz, a number of the members have backgrounds in scientific fields. And so they decided, hey, let's form a science committee, which sounds pretty geeky, but cool. And (laughs) they're going to look at all these studies and kind of summarize like what they show in terms of the impact of mountain biking on the environment. And I didn't I couldn't find a list of all the studies that they looked at or even a count. Um, But, you know, they... They make it sound as if it was a very comprehensive look at all the studies they could get their hands on. Um, and Dylan, uh, one of our freelance writers, sort of summarized those findings. And so I thought it'd be cool to talk about some of what they found. So first off, in general, they say the studies showed no s- uh, significant difference in soil erosion, ruts, trail widening, et cetera, between hiking and biking. And they also found that both have less impact than horse riding. Is that a surprise to anybody?
2: I would have <laughs> thought that mountain biking would have a little bit more impact than hiking. Mm-hmm. I was I was surprised by that. And again, yeah. back to skidding, maybe it depends on how you
0: mountain bike.
1: Yeah, definitely the horse part, I guess, was not surprising.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I feel like the where mountain biking would have more of an impact is with trail braiding. Um or riding through or around puddles, mm-hmm. basically like traffic mitigation to where oh, yeah. people are going to, um, yeah, if the trail's not wide enough or they're not yielding correctly, then mountain bikers who aren't educated on the topic are going to go off trail and go around and widen the trail.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then one of the other things that they sort of found from these studies that fits with what we were talking about earlier with illegal trails is that mm-hmm those social trails, those illegal trails are different from, you know, official mountain bike trails in that they don't go through a lot of these environmental reviews. The trail builders don't always know what they're doing. And, and therefore those trails do tend to have problems with erosion and and ruts and things. And Mm -hmm. I think the point that they're trying to make is that you know, if you're, if you're a hiker or you're somebody or even an environmentalist and you're looking at a trail saying, this mountain bike trail is terrible. I can see it eroding and it's rutted and uh, it's just a, a mess. Generally, those trails are the ones that are not officially sanctioned. Those are the ones that have not been built for mountain biking and that purpose-built trails uh, can be very sustainable.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: So they also looked at impacts on wildlife, and again, they found that the sort of human interaction with hikers, bikers, and equestrians are generally the same across all of those user groups, Um, and they found some animals even were less disturbed by bikers than other types of trail users. Again, was this something surprising to anybody?
0: I could see where that... um yeah, I mean, generally, if you're out on a hike with a group of people, you're going to be conversating more than you would when you're riding. Um, bike noise is kind of interesting. I guess it depends on the bike and how much noise it makes. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I don't know. That is kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, and I guess hikers too. Maybe more of them tend to maybe hike with a dog or something, and and I could see that sure, definitely yeah. being disturbing to wildlife. In particular, they they talked about birds and they found from these studies that birds are more adversely affected when trail users make frequent stops along a trail or when they make more noise, which again, maybe I, I feel like they're kind of trying to call out hikers here. Like hikers are probably going to stop more along the trail than bikers. I don't know.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to say. One thing that one sort of variable that I didn't see in the study doesn't mean they didn't cover it because there's a lot here Mm -hmm. um, is it would have been interesting. And maybe they looked at it to see the difference between when there's just one trail, like, say, a trail that goes along a ridge. Mm -hmm. um, And maybe that would give my thought was that it would give uh, wildlife a chance. A chance to know kind of where not to go Mm -hmm. and so maybe birds are gonna be less likely to nest next to this uncomfortable Mm -hmm. noisy place with all these humans and their (laughs) their machines yeah Uh, whereas like a trail center with you know tons of trails overlapping each other that's kind of like potentially I don't know creating a different situation for wildlife where there's less space for them to get away from the trail
1: right yeah you're creating these sort of islands in between trails uh, that Mm -hmm. cut the animals off. And I don't know where it was. I feel like recently I saw some sort of like infographic or something on this about um, sort of the distances that different animals are affected. So if you imagine a trail is like a line and then like for, I, I don't remember what it was, but like 25 feet on either side, you know, that's gonna impact certain types of animals and then the the distance for other animals is even greater, you know, animals that are more sensitive to sounds or smells or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, when you when you kind of map that out, it's interesting to see how that could overlap and how you could kind of mitigate that and leave areas that are, you know, quiet and where animals are going to feel safe and comfortable. Yeah, for sure. So finally, the thing, one of the things that come from these studies is that these unsanctioned trails, illegal pirate trails, are not isolated to mountain bikers, Um, that all types of user groups create these trails, you know, hikers, horseback riders. And again, like Matt said, um, usually this is just a symptom of an unmet need for a legitimate trail. And what I've heard from land managers, too, is that a lot of trails, especially the ones that hikers create Um, unauthorized trails are, they're just trying to find the shortest path to get to some thing interesting, right? Like if it's a waterfall or it's a, you know, stream or a cool rock or whatever it is, um, people are just going to make a trail to get to that. And, um, so the land managers need to understand that and build trails or maintain trails that are going to meet the needs of the recreationalists.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still see it a lot with hiking groups, um, back at home. And I mean, sometimes people are just silly and will like walk down the middle of a hill and cut a switchback. and say, dude, what are you doing? (laughs) One, it's not cool. Two, there's a good chance there are snakes in there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's annoying too. On a lot of trails, bike trails, if you're on the official trail, you'll see these paths kind of cut off to the side and a lot of times they're dead ends. I mean, they dead end at some rock or, you know, I mean sometimes it's cool, there's a cool view there or whatever, but it's definitely a problem that it's not just bikers that are building these trails.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's also a lot of motorcyclists like I mean depending on where you live that mm-hmm. might be blowing things apart and cutting through the track and Yep. There's uh there's a fair bit of that where I was in Oregon, like people riding on not riding motorcycles on mountain bike trails and um yeah, it definitely caused quite a bit of erosion.
1: Yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, one other thing that has been in the news that we actually haven't written about, it's um, kind of flown under the radar. Uh, the Bikes in Wilderness bill was introduced in the Senate again. I believe this is the third year, at least, uh, that a bill has been introduced uh, to. Reverse the blanket ban on bicycles in wilderness areas in the United States Um, Again, you know, if you're not familiar with the bill It would basically allow land managers to decide whether bikes are allowed in certain wilderness areas So it's not it's not something to just, you know, open all of them up to bikes Um, It would still Mm. be a case-by-case basis, but right now in the US uh, bikes are not allowed in official wilderness areas Uh, The sponsor of this bill again is Senator Mike Lee. Um, I believe he sponsored the past ones as well. Um, And he's kind of a controversial figure, um, even among mountain bikers. Uh, Many, you know, most mountain bikers from the surveys we've done support at least some access for bikes in wilderness areas. Um, And yet, some are worried that Senator Lee is maybe not the best a uh, sponsor for this, doesn't have a great track record for sort of environmental protection and things like that. Uh, do either of you guys have any sort of feeling about this? Have you been following this situation?
0: I was kind of doing some research um, in the slow season back in December, mm-hmm. um, and I talked to Ted Stroll about this a bit. Yeah, this was last December or January. Um, so, right, this would be the third time that a bill – is in Congress, but basically it's then again because all the bills that were in the last Congress session expired, and mm-hmm. after the midterm elections, there's a new Congress. They have to reintroduce it. Um, he's still hopeful, uh, but of course it's his job, like to be an optimist mm-hmm. about getting bikes in wilderness. Um, right. So they got Senator Lee to sponsor it again. They were trying to get another senator from North Dakota to sponsor it as well. He says that he's more hopeful that this Congress session will be um, more favorable towards the bill, but Mm -hmm. we'll see. It's like, yeah, we don't really have any reason to get our hopes up. I mean, look (laughs) at the history of it.
1: Right. Yeah. And you know, the bill itself is as far as I can tell, I'm no legal scholar, but reading it, it it seems very limited in scope um, as far as allowing bikes and, and making it a case by case, not a blanket, um, allowance of bikes um, and there's also you know I think people are afraid that this is going to open the door for even more uses beyond bicycles <coughs> and other things that motorize vehicles and then and then after that what's going to happen we're going to start drilling for oil in these wilderness areas yeah. I mean um, again that's sort of Senator Lee's um, he tends to support those types of things he's from Utah uh, where oil and gas is a big part of the economy, and so um, yeah, there's some concern that this sort of opens that door. Um, but I don't know. I, I guess I'm an optimist, and and try to trust that. Um, again, the way this bill is written, it it's very limited. It, it shouldn't allow any of those things. I mean, who knows? Maybe at some point in the future, somebody will introduce a different bill uh, that does go farther. But as far as I can tell, this one this one does pretty reasonable things as, as far as the environment is concerned
0: yeah i think with senator lee i mean his heart's in it for utah um when i was doing research i mean so much of utah's land is tied up uh, under federal land management that the mm-hmm. state can't reasonably access a lot of um ways that they want to use the land um mm-hmm. which i mean i guess i can kind of understand but at the same time it's like Nobody wants to see beautiful land, like, pockmarked by oil rigs and yeah. excavators and stuff like that, so. Yeah. For
2: sure. Do you guys know of any stories of people, um, again, back to the the discussion of, like, a created need mm-hmm. um, of people riding in wilderness areas, like, is part of the discussion around <laughs> this um, coming from, like, the fact that people are riding trails in wilderness areas and, and we want to push to figure out a better way to do that? Or is it only like there's wilderness areas that have trails and we want to ride them?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I, I think a while back we kind of researched like what is the penalty for doing so? I think it's like a $500 mm-hmm. fine. So it's pretty steep. Okay. And I think just from informal discussions with people, um, yeah, I don't know of anybody who really (laughs) tries to like push that and, and there, and I don't think there are specific trails where it's like, Oh yeah, man, we ride this all the time and it would be great if if we were legally allowed to do so. Uh, Right. I think mountain bikers are, we're generally a pretty rule following bunch. I mean, despite some of the stuff you hear, um, you know, around us, like the Appalachian trail is a, um, is a you know, amazing resource that, 2000 mile trail up the east coast that's completely closed to bikes and I've had informal discussions with people and asked like oh man have have you ever thought about what it would be like to ride the Appalachian Trail or have you ever thought about like you know trying a section of it and everybody I talked to is like no like that's a wilderness thing and yeah you know it needs to stay that's that fine. way and we need to protect it so for sure yeah it's an interesting discussion but I'm sure there are places especially out West where um, where you have these much larger wilderness areas and and because of their size, there's nothing else available to bikers in those areas. I think particularly around like San Diego, I feel like the San Diego uh, local mountain bike club there has really been pushing for bikes in wilderness because they are surrounded by a lot of it and don't have a lot of places to ride.
2: It's difficult to find a place to ride there and some of the closest riding is on the military base Which you're not allowed to ride on but the trails are great
0: Yeah, and it seems very volatile up around uh, Idaho and Montana Mm -hmm. where yeah, those wilderness Recommended areas like a new one will pop up and all of a sudden it's like whoa now I can't ride the trails that I've been riding for years
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean I think part of it is defensive In nature that we don't lose some of the trails we already have. I don't, I mean, part of the push is we want to ride new places, but I think part of it too is just to protect the ones that we do have in case they are designated wilderness in the future.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. So finally, uh, this spring, the natural management resource act passed in Congress in the U S and, Uh, This was a big bill. It was a good success, a big win for mountain bikers in a number of ways. Um, First of all, it it permanently authorized the land and water conservation funding, which is a lot of money. It's $300 million a year currently, and it's potentially a lot more. And this is money that is generated by oil and gas leases. Uh, So the oil and gas companies pay government uh, to lease land where they're drilling and doing these other activities and then those funds are earmarked for trail development for recreational use uh, for conservation uses and so that was a big win that funding it seems like almost every year it gets held up by some other political thing so you know some politician says well I'm not I'm not authorizing the land water conservation fund unless you you know do this other thing for me and so This bill finally, like, kind of takes that off the table so that we can be assured that that money is going to be available and that potentially more of it is going to be available. So that was good news. Um, And then also, uh, Matt and Giroud, you guys were talking about in Utah how uh, the oil and gas industry is big there and that um, at times it's threatened mountain bike trails. And part of that act also... Uh, saved the McCoy Flats trail system, which is a popular place to ride from oil and gas development. Uh, So that's Mm. good news as well. Um, That's great. Yeah, so some good successes there. And then also there was a a trail or at least a trail area in the Seattle region where um, this act allows the Evergreen Mountain Bike Alliance to build some new trails along this mountains to sound greenway, uh, which they weren't allowed to do. Basically a lot of what happened with this bill or this, yeah, it's a bill now, um, was to change some land designations that, you know, were more restrictive, not allowing bikes, um, and then changing them over to something that does allow bikes. So it's good, I mean, it's a step, in some ways it's a step toward the wilderness um, ban on bikes being lifted, you know, changing those designations and kind of making them a little bit more open
0: yeah most definitely at least it's one thing in our favor that uh bikes can sort of coexist yeah yeah it seems great
1: yep and hopefully we'll be seeing more of this you know as as biking just i mean in a lot of ways it's just becoming more mainstream you know we like to think that mountain biking has been around forever but i mean not compared to hiking and riding horses, you know. I mean, <laughs> we've only got definitely yeah, we've only got three or four decades in, and so it's it just takes time. A lot of this for people to understand it and um, to then find ways to accommodate it. So, good news. We covered a lot of ground here today, talking about trail advocacy and trail etiquette. Uh, if you'd like to learn more, be sure to go to Singletracks where we enjoy writing articles about these sorts of topics and uh, we definitely will keep you posted on the latest news. That's all I've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace.